Thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you all for being with us today at River Oaks. Welcome to you. Welcome to those joining us online as well. It is great to have you with us today. We've seen lots of new people coming to our church recently, and we're really excited about that. Welcome those of you who are new or relatively new. One of the best ways to learn about our church is by getting to know what we call our vision frame. You'll see it on the screen very, very briefly. Think of it as a window frame through which you look into the future, and you can read this online, but there we have a document we call our Vision 2025. As you look around the frame, you see our, our mission, our discipleship pathway, which is kind of a map for spiritual growth, and on, on the left side of the frame, our values. I'd like to focus for a moment on uh, two of those, the next-gen focus. We, we focus on the next generation, and that's why we have things like our summer block party and our middle school mission trip this week. And then at the top of that list, you'll see Bible-centered. I want to particularly note that one today because we're going to be looking at a challenging topic, another question this morning. And I want to emphasize that we get our answers to these hard questions as much as is possible from Scripture. We do believe that all scriptures inspired by God, that the Bible gives us God's inspired and authoritative word for our lives. If you want to know more about that, you can sign up for our Discover Rock class in August, which is also a pathway to membership in our church. Well, again, we've been talking about questions this summer, and we've talked about things like grief and work. We've also talked about things like gender identity and sexuality and politics. And I thought today we might look at something that was not very controversial. So we're going to talk about why should I believe Jesus is the only way. <laughs> that is a joke, by the way. I know it's a controversial question. And when I say why should I believe Jesus is the only way, I mean the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life. Undoubtedly, this is uh, a difficult belief to hold in our world, in our culture, in our nation today. It, it feels and seems to many uh, narrow or narrow-minded, uh, perhaps less than respectful or tolerant of the views of others. It sounds like exclusivism to say, I've got the only right way and everyone else is excluded from that. And it's especially tough in a world where we're increasingly exposed to all <clears throat> types of views from everywhere, a world with uh, significant and growing globalization, and we have friends in our own community from uh, uh, diverse religious backgrounds, perhaps. I want to emphasize, as I have with other questions, the importance of holding those things that we believe in an attitude of great, great love for other people. As the scripture says, as followers of Jesus, we speak the truth in love. We live before others with great kindness, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But to believe Jesus is the only way is especially difficult in the United States today. On the screen, you'll see a brief snapshot of belief in God among U.S. adults. The Gallup polls, I, I think, began in 1944, asking about people's religious beliefs. And between 1944 and the 1960s, belief in God, the existence of God, uh, 
stayed steady at about 98%. However, in 2022, it had dropped to 81%, significant drop, especially since 2017. So in other words, one out of five U.S. adults now doesn't even believe in the existence of a God, God that created all things. But here's the, the part of the survey that, it, that particularly struck me is uh, remarkable. The belief that God hears prayer and can intervene amongst U.S. adults was only 42%. Now, I wonder about the, the rest of the 81% who believe in God. What kind of a God are they believing in? God that doesn't hear prayer, God that can't answer prayer. So that's the climate we're, we're in today in the United States. And in this climate, why should I believe Jesus is the only way? Now, I realize a topic like this raises some questions, and we have a little extra time in our, our service services here today. So I'm going to invite you as we go through this message, if you do have a question that you would like to see addressed, um, to email question at riveroakschurch.org, and the very smart folks back there in the sound booth will uh, go through those, and if they get any questions, put them up on the screen, and I will attempt and put the word attempt in bold and triple underline. Attempt to, attempt to answer if it's possible with Scripture. And uh, always reserve the right to say, I, I don't know. So, why should I believe Jesus is the only way? Why should a Christian believe that? Why should anybody believe that? I'd like to give four reasons. I believe that it's reasonable and important to believe Jesus is the only way to eternal life. The first one is this, because of the claims of Jesus and Bible writers. If you were listening, as Elizabeth Carlson read that passage a moment ago, Jesus said there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you talk about an exclusive claim. That is one. And Jesus made lots of them when he talked about the need to build our lives on his words, his word as the authority for life. Jesus would later say in John 17 and verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Many people have an idea. They, they don't want to speak badly about Jesus, so they'll say he was a good teacher, believe Jesus, but he's one of many ways to God. Uh, not God himself, not the only way to God. C.S. Lewis was, was famous in mere Christianity for saying these words. Lewis wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The claims of Jesus, what about his followers? We see these words in Acts 4, verses 10 through 12. Peter, who'd been with Christ for three years, now Jesus crucified, raised from the dead. In the last sentence on the screen, verse 12 of Acts 4, Jesus says, and there is, Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What about the Apostle Paul, the great teacher, the great theologian of the church who wrote almost half the books of our New Testament in Philippians chapter 2? He writes of Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, Paul says, every tongue, every single one of us, every religious leader who's ever lived included in that group will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why believe Jesus is the only way? Because the claims of Jesus and his followers, the Bible writers. Secondly, because of his resurrection from the grave. Jesus is not the only person to have been raised from the dead. The prophet Elijah raised someone from the dead in the Old Testament. The apostle Peter raised someone from the dead in the New Testament. But Jesus is the only one that's predicted his death and resurrection, and it came to pass. So much so that the Apostle Paul, in his defense of the resurrection, says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. In other words, Paul said, there's tons of evidence. This was an historical event with hundreds of eyewitnesses. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. That's why Paul would go on to say in this chapter, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, meaning it's useless. You're still in your sins. But he went on, <coughs> went on to say, <coughs> excuse me, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And his resurrection confirms the truthfulness of his words. I'm going to skip to the next point here. Why believe Jesus is the only way? Because Jesus' mandate to get the message of his salvation to all nations. If Jesus was only one on a menu of ways to get to God, why would he have been so emphatic about the need for us, his followers, to get the message of his gospel to every nation of the world, to every ethnicity, the Greek word for nations used is ethne, the different uh, language groups, people groups of the world. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, notice carefully what he's saying. He's saying all of history, the end of all things, it's tied to my return. 
in my return is tied to the getting of the gospel to all the ethne, all the nations of the world. If Jesus is not the only way, why the need to tell all nations? If all that matters is that you are sincere in what you believe, why not just make that our message? Be sincere. We could get together with all the other religious leaders of the world and agree we're going to preach one message, sincerity. Just be sincere. Sincerity and truth are often at odds. Some people sincerely believe they can put on a suicide vest and kill as many people as possible and they're doing what God wants and they'll get rewarded in heaven. Sincere but wrong. In Luke 24, Jesus again, as you see in the last uh, verses there, thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be, be proclaimed in his name <clears throat> to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So his death, his resurrection, repentance for forgiveness of sins. There will be a day, the book of Revelation tells us, in uh, just a most beautiful depiction in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, when we'll see all these nations together, John the Apostle writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches and crying out, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a reason, friends, that we are so focused on getting the gospel out, not only here but to the unreached nations of the world. Finally, why should I believe Jesus is the only way? Because only God can bring us to God. If you don't remember any other sentence I say this morning, I would encourage you to remember this one. Only God can bring us to God. And Jesus is God. Notice what Paul writes here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Notice the words there. In Christ, God was reconciling. Remember what Jesus said in the passage that we heard when Elizabeth read earlier? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus often said, the Father and I are one. God was in Christ reconciling the world himself. Only God can bring us to God. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, Paul writes. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus. Jesus was sinless, the Son of God, God the Son. He bore our sin on his sinless self. He made him who knew no sin so that to be sin for us, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. God the Son became the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, the great substitute, the one who took our place, because only God could bring us to God. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus who knew no sin, for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God. Only God can bring us to God. Any approach to God for our salvation that depends upon our goodness, our efforts, our good intentions, or even our sincerity to secure our salvation is taking a, an inadequate view of the infinite holiness of God. I think when we think, if we try hard, if we're sincere, God's got to accept us. We, we're not accounting for the utter holiness of God and for our sin. But God intervened. Jesus came, God the Son, and he took our place because only God can bring us to God. This is why, friends, it's important to believe in, in the doctrine we talk about here a lot, the Trinity that there is one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. If Jesus were not God, he could not have redeemed us because only God can bring us to God. If you want to know more about the Trinity, by the way, we've got some little booklets at our resource center. They're free. You can pick one up today. Just after the service, go by and say, can I, can I get one of those Trinity booklets? I'd like to know more about that. I'll end with this and then uh, invite you if you have a question. If any questions have come, we'll respond to those. If not, I've come up with one or two myself. Um, Hebrews chapter 1. Love this passage for the way it exalts Jesus. You'll see it on the screen. Notice very, very carefully as we read through it what it says about Jesus. The uniqueness of who he is. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me stop there and just as you're looking at those verses, remind you again what this passage says about Jesus. That he is the Son. The Son of God. God the Son. That he is the heir of all things that he is the one through whom all was created, that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, that he, Jesus, is the exact 
imprint of his nature so that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That he, Jesus, is the one who actually upholds the universe today by the word of his power. And he, Jesus, is the one who made purification for sins by being willing to sacrifice his own life there on the cross. And I'll say it again, only God can bring us to God. Now again, you'll see a slide with the question at River Oaks um, on the screen if you've got questions. Any questions back there? Okay. How do we reach those in sin without showing approval of the sin? That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, is that by acknowledging that we have all sinned and all do sin and fall short of the glory of God, I think of the Apostle Paul who taught us so many of the things that we're thinking about here. And I think of what Paul said when he wrote to um, Timothy. And let me just read these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. So if I'm witnessing to somebody, I'm not sure not going to act like I'm not a sinner. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, that godly man whom God trusted to write half the books of our New Testament says, I'm the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So we ourselves have sinned and we approach others as someone once said, as a, as a beggar telling another beggar where to get bread, as a sinner telling another sinner where to get for forgiveness. And we can do that without condoning the sin, I think. I'm not, okay. <clears throat> That's an outstanding question. Everything you said is based on Scripture from the Bible, but what if someone disputes the Bible is not God's Word in just a book? Great question. Very, 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 very common. Um, here's what I would do if a person is open enough to consider this. I might say something like this to my friend. If I'm talking to a friend and I'm going to treat that person with respect, respect for their views, treat them with kindness. And I'd say to my friend, you know, you're obviously an intelligent person, um, well-read, and I know you know a lot. And I feel certain you wouldn't reject the Bible and what the Bible says about itself without at least knowing the main purpose for which it's written. What do you think was the main purpose for which the Bible was written? And most people are going to say, well, it's a, bu a bunch of history from the Old Testament and um, laws that God gave and telling us how to live and some of the teachings of, of Jesus. 
And I might say to my friend, you know, I, I think you've rejected it without a real grasp of the central theme of the Bible. The Bible itself tells us why it was written in passages like that written by the Apostle John that said, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I would begin to explain that this eternal life is found through Jesus. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And even though that person doesn't accept the Bible as God's authority, it doesn't make the Word of God any less powerful. God uses His Word to bring light and illumination to the minds of those and hearts of those who do not believe. I would simply present the gospel. And I would say to my friend, Here's the challenge I would have for you. If you're really open to understanding what the Bible says, and I'll do this together. Let's read the Gospel of John together. A chapter a day for three weeks, or 21 chapters, or three chapters a day for one week, and then let's talk about it. And I'll just ask you to do this. As you read the Gospel of John, to read it with an open mind and just say, God, if this is true, show me. If this is true, show me. Now, here's my point of the Gospel of John. This is what John 20 and verse 31 says. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So, a person who doesn't accept the authority of the Scripture, um, I would still try to reach that person and engage them in a read-through of the Gospel of John if they're really open, if they're really willing to seek. And Jesus said this. He said, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, and you, the door will be open. If you ask, you receive. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks to him, the door will be open. If that person's willing. You can't make a person willing. You know, the Holy Spirit has to do that. But through your prayers and your willingness to share the gospel and your own testimony and the difference they see in your life, Perhaps God will use that to bring them to faith in you. Most people reject the authority of the Scripture without really understanding its main theme for God to bring us to eternal life, and this life is in His Son, Jesus Christ. Great question. Anything else? What do the prophets like Isaiah say about the way and path to God? Boy, uh, that's a great question, and you picked the best prophet and the easy, one of the easy ones to answer that question with. Isaiah 53 is, to me, perhaps the most clear and thorough presentation of the gospel in any one chapter of the Old Testament. There are, are uh, many passages in the Psalms. The Psalms are the most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament, but Isaiah chapter 53 lays out the clearest, clearest pathway. Listen to these words about Jesus written 700 to 740 years when Isaiah lived before Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Wow. I think that's perhaps the most thorough presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament found in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a great, great question. Any other questions? Regarding Mark 17 and 18, why do you believe this is not the norm in the majority of today's churches or in our individual life experience? I think you're talking about the ending of Mark, which says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and these signs will follow those who believe. They will take up serpents. They will drink. Uh, they will speak with new tongues. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Things like this, these supernatural signs. Two things to say about this. As you read your Bible, you will see Mark uh, 16, I think it's verses 9 through 20 to the end of the chapter, bracketed. Because in the Greek manuscripts, it is disputed whether that is, is included in the original uh, Greek manuscripts. And it's a debate that's never been resolved amongst translators. And that's why in most Bibles it's put there, but it's bracketed with an explanation. However, that's not the only passage in the New Testament that says God does supernatural things. When I read through the book of Acts, I see God doing these things all the time. In fact, my son and I were talking this week, and he said, um, why don't we see more of that in the church today? People casting out demons, people laying hands on the sick, and they're recovering. And here's my answer. I don't know. I just don't know. I, I, we don't see that much of it here in the United States. It seems like for most healings, we rely on the wonderful gifts of medical care, which I consider a great gift from God. However, for many years, I have heard from many countless, countless, maybe hundreds of stories from missionaries that we've been involved with and known in India and in Africa and most recently in the Middle East, who are sharing stories about the supernatural things God is doing to bring people to faith in Jesus. And it seems that God, in His own ways, according to His own will, and in His time, does pour out His Spirit with great power, the same way God has poured out His Spirit with great revivals throughout the history of the Christian church. I talked to uh, someone in person uh, from the Middle East who told me that they are seeing multitudes of people come to, to faith in Jesus through having dreams. Uh, they're seeing demons cast out. They're seeing these things happen today. While we don't see more of it here and now, uh, I don't know. I, I wish we would. I, I pray that we will. But God moves the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians, if Paul, so Paul says, are distributed according to his will. And so, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great question. But it's happening. Um, the supernatural things are happening abundantly in many parts of the world. How do you forgive? Wow, get over religious trauma. Well, that's a, a little bit of a different question, um, but a really sincere one, I'm sure, and a hard one. And, you know, there are so many people who have experienced this Someone told me just this week about a friend who, who was a believer but doesn't go to church because they've been hurt in the church. There have been 
abuses in the church, some of the horrific things we've read about, how do you get over it? Uh, It takes grace and help from the Holy Spirit. But I think we have to realize that harm has been done to many in the name of religion. Jesus, of course, crucifixion was called for by very religious people. Religion itself without Christ can be a terrible and a dangerous thing. Yet this question may come from a person who's thinking about hurt in the Christian church. And the reality is that has happened and that does happen. And I think you just have to realize that the trauma did not come from God. It came from sinful people who are not living as they ought. And the worst thing you could do is let what some harmful, sinful person did separate you from your closeness, your fellowship, your communion with the God who loves you dearly and gave his life for you and accepts you for all of eternity and you'll be with him forever. Don't let that hurt keep you from a relationship with God or from his church. As imperfect as the church is, and it's imperfect because it's made up of us, don't let it keep you from the body of Christ. That would not be God's best for you. So call upon him for grace as he gives you the grace, forgive. Okay, what about people who've never heard? This one is... You know, if we say Jesus is the only way, we've got to think about this, don't we? I mean, we have to think about that. Um, Other religions, people who are very sincere, people in other religions sometimes who are better than a lot of Christians we know. What about that? Let me just say a few things about this. Uh, First of all, The reason we ask that question is in our heart of hearts we're thinking, is God really fair? If Jesus is the only way, is God really just? What about somebody who's never hurt? The first thing I would say is this. No one ever in eternity, even the devil himself, will be able to point a finger at God and say you are unjust. God has never been, never will be, cannot be, unjust. God is loving and God is just. The Bible says he's just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, the scripture says, and certainly the answer is yes, he will. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul gives some insight into the reality of God as creator that every person that's ever lived on the face of the world has. Paul writes these things in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. In other words, creation testifies to the creator, shows us that he exists, that he's real. Paul goes on to say then 
that, that uh, certain people didn't honor him as creator, but turned away, hardened their hearts, went their own way. God gave them up to sin. He doesn't deal, however, with those who do seek him as creator, who do honor the witness of God in creation. Paul doesn't address that in this passage. So what about people who sincerely seek God and don't have a missionary or a church in their community or satellite TV or shortwave radio or access to the internet telling them about, about God? Well, first of all, remember, God is not going to be unjust. But here's my opinion, and it's just my opinion. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. This is my opinion, but I think we can support it with Scripture. Any person in the world, anytime, anywhere, who's genuinely seeking God, the Creator, whose witness we have in creation, I believe God will go to extraordinary lengths to reveal himself to that person, to get his saving truth, his gospel, that which is required for that person to be saved. Now, how, how could you possibly say that? Again, apart from the promises that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, everyone who asks receives. I want to give a, a, a couple of examples. Number one, in the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a deacon named Philip. It's a great story to read. And uh, Philip has been involved in incredible uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, people being saved, people coming to faith. And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to Philip through an angel. And he says, go down to such and such a road that leads to Gaza. And he goes to that road, and then the Holy Spirit speaks directly to him and says, go join yourself to this chariot. And there's an Ethiopian man there reading the Old Testament Scripture. And so Philip goes and explains the gospel to him. The man believes. He's saved. He's baptized. Many have suggested that that Ethiopian leader went back and took the gospel to his nation early in the formation of the church. So he was clearly saved, clearly believer, seeking. And then the Holy Spirit actually takes Philip up and translates him to another place. You talk about extraordinary miracles. God went to extraordinary links to get the gospel to that Ethiopian. You can read it in Acts chapter 8. Here's another one in Acts chapter 10. Um, I think you see this one on the screen because I thought this question was coming. And it's, it's one that I put up there myself, so I was prepared for that. <laughs> and li listen carefully to this. It's really important. <coughs> in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. He's a good man. He's devout. He's God-fearing. He prays, but you know what? He's not saved. 
because Acts 11 and 14 recounts how the angel says to him, call for Peter, he'll tell you words whereby you and your household will be saved. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. Well, at the same time, Peter, in another city, goes up on a housetop to pray, and he has this incredible vision. As a result of this, ultimately, these, these messengers come from Cornelius. Peter goes back to the household. Cornelius has gathered his friends and family, a crowd of people. Peter begins to preach. You can read in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is poured out. They all, they come to faith in Jesus just like that. So what do we conclude from that? First of all, even good people like Cornelius needed the gospel, needed to be saved. But number two, and here's the point I really want to make, God goes to extraordinary and supernatural lengths to get that message to Cornelius because he's seeking. He's seeking the true God. So it's my opinion that when a person is seeking God, God goes to extraordinary lengths. And I, I'm, I'm in awe of what I've heard is happening in the Muslim world. It's happened for, I think, the last uh, 30 years or so uh, when it said that far more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus than in the whole, since the beginning of Islam. It's, it's remarkable, but they're, they're just these supernatural and extraordinary accounts and things like that. So, I believe when a person is genuinely a seeker, really seeking God, um, it's my opinion that God will go to extraordinary lengths to get the gospel to them. No one will ever be able to say, God, you're unloving, God, you're unjust, but we are going to marvel at the mercy and the goodness of God um, in that time. I guess we better stop here. We're out of time, and we're beyond out of time. So would you... Um, would you join me as we pray? Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone listening who doesn't really know you yet. Lord, I, I pray you'd put a desire there to know the creator who alone can fulfill our heart's desires. Lord, would you make us people who want to know you and love you and enjoy your fellowship? Father, would you open the eyes of the hearts of those who need your saving grace, your loving kindness, and your goodness. And Lord, while there's a whole lot we don't understand, and in many ways this world is a very dark place and a hard place, and people have suffered trauma, people have suffered hurt. Oh, Lord, have mercy on them today. Pour healing out. But let none be kept from truly seeking you. And Father, reveal yourself to every person here today or watching online. And reveal Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. For you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we pray in his name. Amen.